you have your Bible, saints, please open it to Mark chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 35 through 52. Mark 10, verses 35 through 52. Who are we as a uh, local body of Christ? Who do we want to be as a uh, local church in, in Huntsville, Alabama? The This Is Us sermon series is, is answering those uh, two questions. And, and remember, intentionality is needed when determining who we are and who we want to be. And that means that our stated convictions and our functional convictions must be the same. What we say about our church on our website and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and our printed material should be actually happening in the life of the church. We, we, we want to be actually doing what we say we're doing. We want to actually be who we say we are. Because if we're not, then we're just pretending, you know. We're, we're fake. We're not genuine. We're just make-believe. So who are we? Who do we want to be? We've seen that we want to be a witness in church, a church that actually shares the gospel with people in our lives who we know don't know Jesus. We want to be a praying church, a church that actually intercedes on behalf of one another, a church that prays into the sufferings of the world. And we also want to be a mercy-driven church, a mercy-driven church. This is who we are. This is us, TBC Saints. But is that who you think we are? Is that who you want us to be? I hope so. And I pray so. So if you have your Bible, open it to Mark 10. Mark 10, verses 35 to 52. In these verses, we're going to see what it looks like to be a mercy-driven church. A mercy-driven church. Here's the word of our God. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to set one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which, which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism that I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. But to set at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard of it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus said to them, and then Jesus said to, to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when they, and they came to Jericho, and as leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the side of the road. And we heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming, He began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and and telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, 
have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man and said to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprung up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go away, your faith has made you well. And he immediately recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. This is God's holy and errant word. Please pray with, pray with and for me. Holy Spirit, we've been crying out to you all morning, asking you to descend upon this place, asking you to move in the life of this service, asking you to prepare our hearts and our minds, asking you to draw us into true worship. Lord, we can't, we don't, we can't navigate this life apart from the Holy Spirit. We cannot. And Holy Spirit, you're not the C team of the Trinity. You're just as important as the Father and the Son, and we need you. You are our counselor. You're the one who leads us into all truth. We do not understand Scripture apart from you, Holy Spirit. Any understanding that we have, anything we glean from the Bible, it is because you are giving us enlightenment. It's because you are moving in us. It's because you are allowing us to see it. It's you giving us the sight to see what we can't see. So, Holy Spirit, move, descend in the life of our, our church today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Three men come to Jesus with a request in these verses. And, and their request is, is similar to the two questions that we have been asking of ourselves as a church. Who are we and who we want to be? The first request comes from two of his disciples, James and John, the son of Zebedee. And the two brothers, they walk up to Jesus and they make a request to him. They say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. This is what we want you to do. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And notice that none of the other disciples are there with them. It's just these two brothers. Peter is not even there. And he's part of the inner circle with James and John. But they exclude even Peter. The brothers are thinking only for themselves. And there's something underneath this request. The same two questions. Who we are. Who we want to be. James and John have an idea of who they are. They have an idea of who they want to be. And it comes out in their interaction with Jesus in these verses. And Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? James and John, as if he didn't already know, they respond, grant us one at your right to set, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Grant us one to set, one at your right hand. One at your left hand in your glory. Based on their answers, who do you think they are? Based upon their answer, who do you think they want to be? These brothers think highly of themselves. Highly of their abilities. Highly of their gifts. Highly of their importance. Highly of their position. Is it confidence or is it conceit? Which is it? It's conceit. They think more highly of themselves than they ought. I love the message translation of this verse. The message Bible says, arrange it so that we will be awarded the highest places of honor in your glory, Jesus. Arrange it. Arrange it for us. James and John, they want to be men who have power, prosperity, privilege. 
They want status. They want wealth. They want glory. Is that who we are? Is that who we want to become? It's so easy, saints, to fall into the trap of being and becoming a glory-stealing church. Take that to heart. It's so easy to fall into that trap of being and becoming a glory-stealing church, a church that thinks too highly of herself. A glory-stealing church deceives herself into believing that power, privilege, and prosperity are always signs of God's blessing and favor, but they're not. Please know that. They're not always a sign of his blessing and favor. Please know that. So the church says to Jesus, arrange it, Jesus, so that our church can be awarded the highest places of honor in your glory. This is what the brothers want. And such aspirations come from a misunderstanding of Jesus' earthly ministry right here. The brothers used the phrase in your glory as a reference to Jesus bringing crown king. It's a reference to him establishing his earthly kingdom after he defeats the Romans. It's a reference to him simply being a political messiah who's going to take down the man, take down the Roman establishment. And after he does that, these two brothers want a piece of the pie. Okay? They want a piece of the pie. They want him to arrange it that when he gets into power, they're going to have a place at the table. And there's an urgency behind their request. And they want Jesus to, to make this promise to them before he actually does it. Do you see that in the verses? Before you would take the throne, we need some guarantees, Jesus, that we're going to be at the table with you. We're going to be there with you. Why is there urgency? Why do they need him to go ahead and, and make these promises to them now? Because there's only room for two people at the right and left hand of the king. But there's ten other disciples who may want those positions too. And so the two brothers are like, well, we need to go ahead and make our move. It's a preemptive strike on their part. And so that's what they do. When you get to the mountaintop, Jesus, don't forget about us. Don't forget about us. We want those seats for ourselves. And I get it. Because to sit at the right and left hand of the king means you are important now. It means you are part of the royal court. You're part of the cabinet. You have status, you have power, you have privilege, you have all these things. And they're saying to Jesus, we're in your inner circle. We're your top two disciples. So when you become king, spread the wealth. Spread it out. Share it with us. So who are these brothers? Who do they want to be? The glory-stealing thieves who want more glory. We're never satisfied with a little bit. The eyes are never satisfied. They always want more. Now, the brother's plan doesn't go unnoticed by the other disciples. And what do you think the other disciples are going to do when they find out? You think they're going to be, man, guys, you shouldn't do that. Man, guys, you guys are, are, are lacking humility by doing this. Why are you guys being so selfish? You guys need to be repentant of, of what you're doing here. No. They became indignant with them. They became resentful. They became angry. And it's not righteous anger. They're upset because they beat them to the punch. Because if they're honest, they want those things for themselves. 
And please know that is not Christ-centered, what is happening here. It is man-centered. It's self-serving. And if we're honest with ourselves, we want the same thing from Jesus. But we hide and mask it in Christian talk to make it seem spiritual. But if we peel back the layers of our heart, I know for myself, I don't know about you, but I know for myself, I love power, I love privilege, and I love prosperity. And to make me feel good about it, I mask it in Christian talk to make it seem less sinful. Here's a principle for us this morning. It's so typical for believers and local churches and denominations and parachurch ministries to assume that somehow we have a closer end with Jesus than our counterparts. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Here's what I mean. Jesus is in my tribe. Jesus is in my camp. Jesus is in my political party. Jesus is in my church, my youth group, my campus ministry, my conference, my Bible study, my small group. And when we do this, we wrongly assume that the king of kings attaches himself to our coattails and our agenda. But he does not. He does not attaches himself to our agenda and to our coattails. Nor does he bless our glory still in pursuits. Jesus isn't going to grant the two brothers that request. I hope you know that. Yeah, we read it in the text. He said, it ain't, I don't have the right to grant you that. I don't have the right to grant you that. And what is it? He tells them no. He tells them no. I'm not going to grant you that request. He's not going to arrange it so they can have these important seats. He's, he's not going to give them the, the right to set it as right hand and left hand. And so his response to them, I love his response to them because his response to them ministers to their misunderstanding of who he is and what he, come, what he came to do here. You see, they assume Jesus is on earth to take an earthly throne. And they want to be part of his entourage when he does. And a question for us, what are you assuming about Jesus that might be a complete understanding of him? Think about that. What do you assume about Jesus that might be a misunderstanding of him? Because here's the thing we got to realize. If you don't think you have any misunderstandings of Jesus, that means you're Jesus. If you're not prone to blind spots, that means you're on the same level as Jesus. If you don't think you have blind spots about who he is and what he came to do. If you can't see that about yourself, then you're in a whole different camp. You're on the same level as the Trinitarian God that we serve. So what do you assume about him that might be a misunderstanding of him? Or do we think we have Jesus all figured out? And what kind of box have we stuffed Jesus into to suit our own agenda? James and John, that's what they're doing. They're misunderstanding. They really don't understand what they're asking of him. Look at verses 38 through 40. And Jesus says, he says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And, 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 and guess what they said? They said, we're able. This is like comedy. We're able, Jesus. And Jesus said, the cup I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to set at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant. 
it is for those from whom it has been prepared. For those for whom it has been prepared. The brothers don't understand what they're asking. They don't understand the path that Jesus has to take to enter into his glory. And notice the two questions that he asked them. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm drinking? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And the baptism in the cup represents something quite differently than the brothers assume they represent. Okay? It doesn't represent power, privilege, and prosperity. No to the no, no. They do not represent that. That's why they're so giddy and saying we're able because they assume it represents that. The cup and the baptism represents what he, what he tells, what he already told them in verses 32 through 34. In these verses, he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. In verse 34, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. That is the cup. That is the baptism. Suffering is the path that Jesus takes to enter into his glory. And they don't understand that yet. And what he's telling them, they will drink that cup of suffering too. They will experience the same thing. Because when you're saying you want to be like Jesus, it also means you'd be willing to suffer like Jesus. So be careful what you ask for. Be careful what we ask for in our prayers. The, Jesus' path to glory is through the suffering of the cross, not through an earthly war with the Romans, what they assumed that he came to earth to do. The cup is suffering. The baptism is a baptism of death. And we know that his crown was a crown of thorns, not in pearls. Are you sure you want to drink this cup? Are you sure you want to be baptized with this baptism? They say yes but they don't understand. Jesus is going to bear the wrath of God for the sins of the world on the cross. That's what takes place on that cross. All of God's wrath comes down upon that on his son and not us. And that's an amen statement. I need my amen sign. He says in verse 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you, do you realize that Christ came to earth in the form of a servant, and he freely offered up his life? And please know that they didn't take his life. When Jesus says they would mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, he allowed them to do that to him. Because at any moment, he could have stopped it. At any moment, he could have got down off that cross. He willingly submitted to that for you. So you don't have to go through it. And that's love. That's love. That's good news. Good news. He offers up his life in our place. He offers his life up as a ransom. He gave his life away for you. And a ransom is paid to release someone for bondage and, and, and jail or capture. And Christ's death ransoms you from sin. His life, his death, ransoms you from sin. It ransoms you from God's wrath. That's what it did. 
It set you free so that now when the father sees you, you are son, you are daughter. That is your position before the father because the blood of the lamb that covers you. So you can walk around in that confidence all the days of your life. If you know Jesus is saving faith, you're no longer under God's wrath. You are under his blessings and favor despite your circumstances. All the days of your life because of the blood of Jesus. And that is good news. Wonderful news. You see, what you understand about Jesus influences how you approach him. It influences what you ask of him. It influences what you expect him to do. And it influences how you live for him as well. Who is the Jesus you are approaching this morning? Who is the Jesus you serve? Is he the one you expect to arrange your life so you always have easiness, power, honor, status? Is he the one you expect to arrange this church so we get to share in his glory? Is he a Jesus that you have mastered? Is he a Jesus you, who holds on to your coattails? Is he a Jesus who conforms to your identity, to your agenda? See, we all have a Jesus created in our own imagination. We do. One that we can control. How does this look like in your life? A glory still in church assumes Jesus exists to be at her beck and call. She blindly believes that Jesus, that the church, that, her, that she is going to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. She believes she's better than other churches. She believes Jesus only shows up when she shows up. She deceives herself into believing she has completely figured Jesus out, both theologically and ethically. Saints, that is pride. And pride always comes before the fall. And our glory still in ways, it catches up with us at some point. We're not a glory still in church. Nor do we want to be that. I don't want to be a glory standing pastor. Now, I struggle with it, okay? I struggle with it. I repent of it all the time. I do. Because my heart, it, it, it likes recognition. It likes when people say, good job, pastor. It likes when people say, come speak here and come speak at this conference. Come be part of this video. In my head, I got a wonderful wife who brings me back down to earth. <laughs> and I, I love that. And so we have to fight against it. Instead, we want to be a church that says and believes the words of an old hymn that said, Jesus, cast a look on me. Give me sweet simplicity. Make me poor, keep me low. Seeking only thee to know. All that feeds my busy pride, cast it evermore aside. Man, what feeds your busy pride? What feeds it? What feeds it? Is it money? Is it a relationship? Is it the praise of man? Material possessions? Power? Is it politics? Good works? What currently feeds your pride? We all have those things. If you can't see it, that's a blind spot for you. Because we all have them. And when the Spirit shows it to you, can you say to Jesus, can you cast it aside? Can you cast it aside? Because when you're asking Jesus to take a look upon you, you're also asking him to do surgery on you too. To do surgery on you. To show you the ways in which you still got to unloose the grip of your life and let him have it. Give it to me. Trust me. I'm good. 
give it to me. Would you give it to him? A glory still in church will always say these words untruthfully. False humility. Say it with her lips, but her heart is far away from it. But a mercy-driven church, a church that's driven by mercy, will say these words and believe them and live them. That's who we are. That's who I want us to be. It's a mercy-driven church, not a glory-stealing church. For a mercy-driven church approaches Jesus differently than James and John. She approaches Jesus differently than a glory-stealing church. She approaches Jesus with what I call a Bartimaeus-type attitude, and that is an attitude of humility. Humility. Humility is one of the underappreciated qualities of people. Is humility. Because someone who's humble sees their blind spots and are teachable to correction when those blind spots are made aware to them. Who is Bartimaeus? He's the third person in our text who makes a request of Jesus. He's the son of Timaeus. He's not one of Jesus' disciples. He's not even part of the crowd of people that follows Jesus around. The text says he is a poor, blind beggar. And so one day while sitting on the side of the road in Jericho, Bartimaeus overhears that Jesus of Nazareth is in town. He's coming down the road. And he's never seen Jesus. But he's heard stories about this Jesus of Nazareth, how he treats people, how he heals people, and how he loves people. And so as Jesus passes by on the road, Bartimaeus cries out to him from the side of the road, Son of Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's a humble plea, a humble request. But many of the people traveling with Jesus don't like it. They don't like it. They consider Bartimaeus' plea an interruption, maybe a distraction. So they rebuke him. They tell him to be silent. Think about that. Take their response to heart. It's unloving. Okay, it's unloving. Bartimaeus is asking for mercy, and they rebuke him for it. He's asking for mercy, and they tell him to keep quick quiet. The people assume, this crowd of people assume, they know the type of people Jesus will hang with. They know the type of people Jesus would minister to. They know the type of people that Jesus would spend time with. And they rebuke Bartimaeus, telling him to be silent as if Jesus is too busy to hear his plea. If Jesus is too famous, because at this point, everyone knows about Jesus. He's almost a celebrity at this point, in this region, at this time. As if he's too famous to associate with the likes of him. He's too much, too, too popular to hang around with people like Bartimaeus. Do you, know, do you understand what, that, what this is communicating? It's communicating to Bartimaeus that Jesus is not going to waste his valuable time on you. Jesus doesn't have time for your plea for mercy. And by trying to silence him, by trying to keep him quiet, they're basically saying to him to sit on the side of the road and do what you do best. That is be blind, be poor, and beg. And leave Jesus alone. Let him pass you by. He doesn't have time for you and your circumstance.
What does your rebuke and silencing of people communicate about Jesus to those in your life? Bartimaeus is seen and treated as unimportant and insignificant, more of a burden to society than a help. And yet, in all his blindness, he sees more Jesus than all those people who can't see. He sees more of Christ than all those people following Jesus on that road. And he doesn't let the people silence him. He, he resists their rebuke. And he cries out all the more. He's telling them, they're telling him to be quiet. And he cries out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And I love what happens next. One, 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 one nonverbal action by Jesus. It, it says, and Jesus stops. And Jesus stops. He doesn't pass him by. He doesn't pretend like he doesn't hear Bartimaeus plead for mercy. I love this because it shows that Jesus welcomes all kinds of people. All kinds of people. And Jesus doesn't tap dance around our pain and brokenness. He ministers to it. He ministers to it. As I told the staff on Wednesday, when I'm going through a tough time, there are certain truths I don't need to hear at that time. If I'm in pain, the truth, I don't need to hear the fact that God is sovereign. I need to hear the fact that God is with me and he cares about my pain. Okay? Doesn't believe I don't believe he's sovereign. Is that, that ain't the truth I need to hear at the moment. The same thing applies to, to any female that ever had a miscarriage. That's not the truth she needs to hear, because what, what she hears is that God doesn't care that I lost my baby when you say that. What she needs to hear is that he cares, and he grieves with you, and he stops. He stops and comes and ministers to you. That's what he does. That's what Jesus does for Barnabas. He says, call him. They called him. He got up. He came to Jesus, threw off his cloak, and sprung up and came to him. And Jesus asked him one question. What do you want me to do for you? Teacher, I want to see. Let me recover my sight. And Jesus says, go, your faith has made you well. He recovers his sight and he follows Jesus. Bartimaeus, he, he, he approaches Jesus out of his blindness. Out of his brokenness, out of his neediness, he doesn't come to Jesus out of his self-sufficiency. Doesn't come to him out of his self-righteousness and his self-glorification. He comes to Jesus for mercy and not glory. For mercy and not glory. How do you come to him? For mercy or for glory? Notice what he says. He says, Jesus, son of David. Son of David is a messianic kingly title for Jesus, okay? In 2 Samuel 7, verses 15 to 16, God made a promise to David, and this is what he told King David, but my steadfast love would not depart from him as I took it from Saul, but from whom I put, from whom I put away before me. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever, and your throne will be established forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. You see, Jesus isn't going to become king. He's already king. You realize that? 
He's already king. He doesn't become king later on. He's already king. And Bartimaeus, he approaches Jesus as a person who is under Jesus, not as a person who's on the same level with Jesus. Who's under him. See, we can't make Jesus so much like us that we forget he's king of kings. Who deserves our worship and our allegiance. Jesus, he ain't so much your friend that he forget that he is your Lord. Okay. That's who he is, too. He is, his saviorship does not demise his lordship or vice versa. He's equally Lord and equally savior at the same time, all day, every day. And that's how we approach him. That's how we approach him. James and John, they come to Jesus as if they're on equal standing with him. That's why they can say, can I have that seat at your right and left hand? It's it's glory, not mercy. In the life of our church, what do we want from Jesus? What kind of member are you? What kind of elder are you? What kind of deacon are you? What kind of leader are you? What kind of spouse are you? What kind of mom are you? What kind of sibling are you? What kind of child or daughter are you? One for mercy, glory, or do you want Jesus' mercy? Can't have both. Glory or mercy. A mercy-driven church, it rests at Jesus' feet. Rests at his feet. A mercy driven church comes to him out of her weakness and blindness. A mercy church, she knows that she has, doesn't have Jesus all figured out. She knows she has blind spots. She knows she has issues. She, she knows that when she cries for mercy, Jesus will stop and hear her cry for mercy. Is this who we are? Is this who we want to be? I pray and hope so. There's a hymn. That says, pass me not by, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou calling, do not pass me by. Let me at thy throne of mercy find a sweet relief. Kneeling there in deep contrition. Help my unbelief. Trusting only in thy merit would I seek thy face. Heal my wounded, broken spirit. Save me by thy grace. Thou the spring of all my comfort. More life to me. Whom have I on earth besides thee? Whom in heaven but thee? That is the song and confession of a mercy-driven church, of a mercy-driven believer, of a mercy-driven Christian family. Can we say that? That's a confession that we make to Jesus. And this table is for the spiritual nourishment of a merciful church, a mercy-driven church. And this table does not belong to the Presbyterian Church of America. It does not belong to the village church. This table belongs to Jesus. The table that he has given to his people for the spiritual nourishment is for those who, who, who have confessed their sins, those who have a relationship with Jesus, those who, who know if, they, if, you have, if you know someone who has issues with you, you have, made, you have gotten right with that person. So this table is for you. So if you have faith in Jesus, you love him as your Lord and Savior, then you are welcome to partake of this meal with us.
friends and family, if you do not profess saving faith in Jesus, we ask that you watch what we do here today. And if you have questions of what it means to know Jesus and saving faith, please come see me after the service. And I will, we can go in my office and I'll share with you how you can become a believer, how you can be made right with God. It's only through faith in Christ. Adults, we ask that the children with you abstain from the elements until they have been invited to the table by the church that you are a member of. Now, all the kiddos, I need to see all the kids. Look at your pastor. This is my favorite part of communion because I get to talk with you. What this meal, what this meal represents, it, it represents what Christ did for you on the cross. The bread represents his body and the juice represents his shed blood. And as your pastor, it is my prayer that each and every one of you will come to saving faith in Jesus. And then you, then you get to partake of this meal with your mom and your dad or your guardian. So I want you to realize that Christ did die on a cross for your sins because he loves you. And when you receive him, you become his. A big bad hug from Jesus is what you get when you receive him in saving faith. And that means you ne- he never lets go of you. That bear hub will follow you to the grave. And that same bear hub will resurrect you one day as well. Amen? Amen. 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 So let's go to the Lord now and have a time of asking the Holy Spirit to prepare our hearts for the table. And the officers that are assisting, I'll ask you to please come forward. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, having given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. You do this in remembrance of me. me not, O gentle Let me at thy throne 
Christ's broken, Christ's body broken for all of you. You love it, please. In the same manner, he also took the cup. And having given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Christ's blood shed for all your sins, past, present, and future. Drink from it, all of you. Now, will you please stand as we close our service? <laughs> 